That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to The Daily Break. I'm Andrew Tallman. Here's what's happening today at Newsweek. Perhaps the only thing that people like to do more than go fishing is to lie about when they've gone fishing. But in this case, it looks legit. Braden Sharon was spearfishing off the coast of Texas near Port Aransas Fisherman's Wharf, and he managed to haul in a 137-pound Cubera snapper, sometimes called a Cuban snapper. And when you first see the picture on Facebook, you think, that can't possibly be. It kind of has the look of, you know how people will catch a small fish and hold it out way in front of them so the camera sees it real big in front of them? It kind of has that look at first. He's kind of sitting in a boat, leaning back towards the motor, and you see this enormous person-sized fish in front of him, all orange and gray. Oh, but then you see the other photos. <laughs> yeah, this is legit. I just can't get over the idea that he was spearfishing without scuba gear, just free diving, and he thinks to himself, oh, there's one for me, a me-sized fish. Now, to put this all in perspective, the typical weight, according to Florida Fish and Wildlife, of a Cubera snapper is about 40 pounds, so this is about three and a half times the normal size, and they can get to be around 55 years old. Now, the question of a world record is going to be a sort of an interesting one because different agencies classify these records in slightly different ways depending on the method of the catch and whether the catch was in freshwater or saltwater. According to Texas Parks and Wildlife, the rod and reel state saltwater record has the heaviest Cubera snapper listed at 131 pounds caught in 1983. That would be less, this one would be bigger. But Texas Parks and Wildlife also states that the heaviest saltwater Cubera snapper caught by any method was a 151-pound fish caught by handline in 1984, which would make that one bigger than this one. Then you have the International Game Fish Association says that the heaviest all-tackle Atlantic Cubera snapper was caught in Louisiana in 2007, weighing in at 124 pounds and some change. Needless to say, the fish is enormous. It's going to make for a great story. It's probably a world record in most categories, and it'll certainly be inspiring as Florida heads into their red snapper season this Friday, although red snapper gets nowhere near as big as this fish. But still, a boy can dream. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From one story about a man catching a fish to a story about the possibility of the fish catching the man, we turn to Panama, where off the coast, a man named John Deere, no tractors involved, had been sailing his boat, which served both as sailboat and as home and host of all of his possessions from Colombia to Panama, about a 30-hour journey, when right toward the end, the worst possible thing that can happen to a solo sailor takes place. He's caught a little bit of fish. He's trying to turn, and somehow he slips, falls into the water, and realizes with horror that he's not secured by a safety line to a boat that is now sails up motor running on autopilot, heading away from him. And no, no life preserver. Also, 
He's about 10 miles offshore, and it's 5 o'clock in the evening, the sun's setting soon, and no way to get back to shore. Oh, did I happen to mention the name of the location? Shark Point. So now he's facing the prospect of trying not to die, not to drown, not to get eaten, and trying to get back to shore somehow in the hopes of being rescued, all of which are dim prospects overnight in these dangerous waters. The most common sharks to be found in that vicinity, hammerhead bull and oceanic white tip. Man, the bull sharks, those are mean ones. So having gotten over the shock and the frustration and the anger and the horror of it all, he just decides to get calm and go back and forth between breaststroke and back frog stroke. And he basically heads towards shore. Eventually, when the night falls, he's having to use the moon to navigate, but just keeps on swimming, knowing that he can't give up. At one point during the journey, he felt a little nibble. Oh, no. (laughs) But apparently, it was not a big deal. Contrary to the advice you might get, he got into a frenzy and panicked and kicked and screamed and tried to scare it away, but it was just a fish, he says. How he knows, we're not clear. Eventually, he did, in the morning, get in toward land, but it was in an area where the cliffs were rocky and jagged and uh, dense, impenetrable jungle, and he just had to hope that somebody would rescue him from there using a stick with his t-shirt attached. And somebody did stop, and they did take him back, and he's a little bit despondent because he had been living off of the boat. The boat had all of his possessions. He'd been traveling around the world over the last three years. He'd actually gone from Greece to Panama. But he's just grateful to be alive, which I think is probably how we'd all feel in that circumstance. And finally, from the who wants to live forever file, apparently the answer is not as many people as you would think. Research done by the United Kingdom's religion think tank, Theos, and the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion and the University of Cambridge surveyed thousands of adults and asked them questions about whether they agreed or disagreed with various hypotheses. For example, I would like to live forever if scientists were able to engineer it. A question which most people either disagreed or disagreed strongly with, 60% on the negative side. However, for those who were willing to try living forever through scientific means, men far more willing to try it than women, 25 to 12%. Part of the purpose of the study was to find out what sort of correlation there is between religious adherence, religious attendance, and also willingness to participate in scientific-based immortality. And on this particular question, the people who wanted the scientific solution were the people who were less likely to have a strong religious affiliation, which sort of makes sense, you know, because typically the religious picture of immortality is a pretty sweet-looking deal, and why would you settle for something that's merely scientific if you could have, you know, heaven? Another question on the survey was, would you want to be cryogenically frozen? On this one, 72% said, no, thank you. But of those who were willing, men were more willing to follow Disney on ice than women were. Perhaps the most interesting one here asked people how they reacted to the statement, I would like to clone myself if I could. What would you guess here? Oh no, the answer is nobody wants this. Well, almost nobody wants this. 89% of men not interested in cloning. 96% of women not interested in cloning. But that does leave about one-ninth of men, 11%, who'd be open to being cloned, and about 1 in 25 women at 4%, right? Now, they don't really explain what reasons people gave for not wanting to be cloned. I'm not even sure they did that research. I don't know whether they watched, say, Multiplicity and they saw various iterations of Michael Keaton becoming gradually more and more stupid versions of Steve. I don't know whether they took a rudimentary philosophy class where they were exposed to the idea that if I clone you and transfer all of your memories into the new version of you, would you want that? Oh, sure, it's fine. Uh, What happens if there's a mishap and in the copying room they forget to kill off the old body and now there's two of you trying to figure out who actually owns the car, the job, the house, the spouse, the kids, and the memories? What do you do then? 
oh, not so interested in that anymore. And it's also not clear. Are you talking about creating a clone that would coexist, creating a clone that would supersede, creating a younger clone of yourself? Lots of questions here. I know, I'm a philosopher. They only ask you the simple thing. Would you want to be cloned? I have too many questions. I can't answer that. And I've read far too much science fiction to give you a simple answer to such a complicated question. Of course, I've always thought that if you were going to engage in any kind of cloning activity, you'd certainly investigate the possibility of, say, upgrades, right? Surely a society that can pull off cloning successfully can pull off some improvements. So what was the point of the research? Well, according to Nick Spencer, a senior fellow at the Research Institute, it was to see if there was some truth to the underlying notion, the allegation that people have historically made against religion, that it was really just born of a human desire for immortality, and then you sort of manifest that desire as wishful thinking into a religious system. And he says our study shows that immortality, at least the idea of living forever on Earth as we are, isn't really that appealing to most people, which kind of falls in line with the old, would you want more of this? This? Oh, no, thank you. Also, interesting to note that whatever impulse toward immortality exists, it's much stronger in men than it is in women. But historically, the data seems to indicate that religiosity is much more at home among women than it is among men, which would seem to be another disproof of the allegation that religion is just a manifested wish fulfillment or something like that. That's it for the Daily Break. Be sure to head over to Newsweek.com for these stories and more, including our growing podcast lineup. And consider subscribing to the digital and print editions of Newsweek if you haven't already. Hit the five-star review before you go. I appreciate it. I'm Andrew Tallman. Thanks for listening to The Daily Break, brought to you by Newsweek.